he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I just want to introduce uh, our speaker today. Mike's become a good friend over the summer. Uh, you may know uh, Mike Murphy from, he's on staff at All Saints and has also served the Anglican Mission uh, for a long time, and we're so glad that he's here, and I'm going to pray for him so we can hear from him. Uh, Lord, thank you for Mike. Thank you for bringing him here um, to speak to us from your word. pray that you would bless him um, and that you would bless us as we hear what it is that you would say to us through him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you again. Even though it's the heat of summer, uh, I, I have a feeling we're all going to survive it somehow. I want to ask you a question as we begin this morning. Have you ever thought about heaven? I mean, really thought about it? It's kind of a question that, that Jesus begins to pose to us in the beginning of these parables. I don't know what, what some of you think about heaven, what some of your notions are, but I think for most people, they, they've got this general idea that there's something like golden streets and pearly gates and clouds and cherubs and harps and, and things like that. If that's your idea of heaven, uh, I'm probably going to stick a pen in that bubble for you this morning. Because I don't think that's exactly what we see uh, given to us in Scripture or in, in the Gospel reading today. A professor that I had in, in seminary years ago said something that struck me. It stayed with me ever since. He said, it's more important for you to have a well-developed theology of heaven than it is for you to actually believe in heaven. Now, I didn't understand that at the time, and I, I went back and had a conversation with him, and he said, let me tell you what I mean by that. He said, if you, do, if you don't understand what scripture says about heaven, then it's almost impossible for you to grasp the fullness of what it would mean for you to ever be in heaven. And I thought that's a profound way of, of, of looking at it. It's a very different way of looking at it. <clears throat> I was looking through some old files the other day from time to time. Uh, I try to go through and sort of refresh and clean things out. And I found some sermon notes from probably, gosh, 25 years ago. And it was on this very passage. And as I looked at those notes, I, I thought, did I really stand up and, and do a three-point sermon that was all alliterative? <laughs> I mean, everything sort of rhymed. I mean, it was cute, I guess, but uh, even I, I even got a little bored reading the notes, so uh, I'm not going to do that to you this morning. 
But what I would like to do is to, is to talk for a minute about what is a theology of heaven? What, is that, what does it mean for us? How do we develop a theology of heaven? I think as we, as we look at the scriptures, one of the things we see very clearly is that heaven is not just something that is talked about in the abstract. In, in Matthew's gospel in particular, the way uh, Matthew pulls these, these seven uh, images together, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. You have to remember who he was writing to and what part of his audience was. If, a, if the Jewish audience uh, was reading this, they would have not had the ability almost, they, they, they could not say the words out loud of, of the name of God or Yahweh. So what Matthew does is he substitutes a word that almost virtually means throughout his gospel, God. And he said that word substitute is heaven. It says the kingdom of heaven is like. How many times do we read where Jesus says, when you go out and preach to people, heal the sick, raise the dead, proclaim good news to the poor, and tell them what? The kingdom of God has come near to you. See, that was his message that I am bringing heaven down and what Matthew does here is he says, this is heaven brought down in a very real sense. And what I want you to grasp is what it's actually like. What is it actually like? Is heaven a place or is it not? Is it a state? Is it something that, that we just sort of aspire to but we can never really attain? I hope not. We sang uh, a few minutes ago, didn't we? Something about heaven, didn't we say that this is, this is our hope, this is our promise, this is our joy? I think everybody sang that, and as we sing it, we probably prayed it in our hearts. That we all hope that this is a very real place. And I believe that it is. If, you, if we had time, we'd, we could do a sort of a romp through the Old Testament, and we would see images throughout the Old Testament of what the prophets the patriarchs, kings, judges, all those people had to say about heaven. And we could do the same thing in the New Testament. What would we find? We would find that, that heaven is a place of rest. I'll give you rest to the weary. Rest for your souls. You can lay your burdens down. It's a place of rest. It's a place of worship. The elders were constantly in worship. All the company of heaven is constantly in worship. The four living creatures are constantly in worship. Heaven is a place of worship. It's a place of service. Jesus tells the disciples, there will come a time when you will actually judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Paul said, I count myself to be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. I gladly put myself in service to the Lord Jesus and to his work and to his will. Those are just some of the things, I think, attributes of heaven, but it's a real place. Jesus talks about it a lot. Why would he, why would he say to his audience, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it weren't so, I would have told you. He's describing a place that you can almost see Jesus is an eyewitness for us to having viewed heaven, to, to seeing what the kingdom of heaven is really like. Jesus turns to an audience and says, 
there's going to time, there will be a time coming when you will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Angels coming from where? Heaven. From a place. A place that we aspire to. A place that, that we long to be. A place that's better than what we have here. You know, there's some, some sort of wives' tales that, that go along with this, too. How many times have you heard someone say, this earth is not my home? Show of hands. Anybody ever heard that? Yeah, a lot of people. I'm probably guilty of having said it a time or two. And that's dangerous, I think. Because what that does is it begins to, to infringe upon the reality of what we call the incarnation. When Jesus came in the flesh. He came for a reason. He came to restore to mankind salvation. He also came to restore all of creation. He came in the flesh for a reason. If, if heaven were not real, if heaven were not a real place, why would he have gone to all that trouble? Why couldn't he just have remained uh, the, with God, the Spirit of God, uh, just sent the Holy Spirit and just been done with it. Saved himself a lot of trouble, a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, a lot of grief, a lot of time walking around with 12 knuckleheads trying to get them to understand what it was that he was saying. But he didn't. He came in the flesh for a reason. And that reason was to, to literally say to us, eye to eye, I have, I have borne witness to the glory of God and the beauty of heaven. When I restore you and restore all of creation, that restoration is going to be complete, it's going to be full, it's going to be total. See, that's a promise that Jesus made. It's a promise that, that he intends to keep. A man once said, one of, the, one of the things you ought to always do is search the scriptures for the promises of God. And when you read one, write it down and then pursue God for that promise. And I don't know how often you do that in your prayers. I do it a lot. And I go, God, I read this in your word. You promised you would do this. And I'm going to hold you to it. You promised you would heal, so heal. You promised you would restore, so restore. You promised you would redeem, so redeem. You promised you'd build your church, build it. So what do we learn from, from this? What do we see as we think about heaven? What are the possibilities? One of the things that, that I think as we, as we turn to these parables that strikes me is that in this very short uh, section of Matthew's gospel, seven times Jesus says to the crowds, the kingdom of heaven is like. And then he goes on to use metaphor to describe it. The first one we read today is the mustard seed. You know, I think for most people, they think if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to that mountain be moved and it would be moved. It's true. But I think there's something deeper that Jesus is getting at when he talks about the mustard seed. It is small, it's, it's tiny. And he says when it's planted, it grows up into a great bush. And then he goes on to use a little hyperbole. He exaggerates and he says, actually it becomes a tree. Well, anybody that knows anything about herbs and gardens and plants knows that a mustard seed can, can become a shrub, 
but it's never going to grow into a tree. And yet Jesus says it's going to grow into a tree and its branches are going to be home for the birds of the air. Now why would he say that? Unless he was pointing to something about the kingdom of God that is totally supernatural. And I think that he is. I think he's saying the kingdom of heaven is so supernatural that it's like something that you would say cannot happen, but it does. Once it's planted, it grows, becomes a bush, and then it becomes a tree, supernaturally. It's not constrained by what we would call the physical laws of this earth. There's a supernatural element that is introduced in, in his understanding of what the kingdom of heaven is like. He talks about that the kingdom of heaven is like a woman who took leaven and worked it into the bread. And I think in many ways, Jesus is sort of talking about himself here. He says, you know, this is what happens when you come into contact with me. This is what happens when you become to be my uh, disciple. See, I'm the, I'm the leaven in your life. I'm what changes you from a lump of dough into something that, has, that is alive, has risen, becomes a loaf of bread that you can bake and feed your family with. The interesting thing about these two first two uh, elements of these parables is that seeds and yeast are both living organisms. When you plant seeds, they, they grow. We don't know how exactly. We just sort of throw them in the ground or stick them in, the, in a garden with our fingers or a trowel or a shovel. But they grow up to be something that remarkably looks nothing like the little seeds we planted. Same thing with yeast. You can go buy a packet of yeast in the grocery store and add water to it, put it in, in flour, and make bread. But when you put water to it, that yeast actually comes back to life. It's a living organism again. Jesus says that's the way the kingdom of heaven is. It's living, it's alive, it's an organism. It grows, it changes, and it changes things around it for the good, for the better. He says further, the kingdom of heaven is like a field. When a man found it, um, he found the treasure hidden in the field, excuse me. And when he found it, with great joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought the field. You know, there's something about this that, 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 I, that strikes me. There's two sides to almost every parable that Jesus tells. There's a side of the man that owns the field currently. A man goes and, and he, he's walking around this field and he finds a great treasure and he rushes off so he can come back and buy the field because he knows what the, the prize is. But what about the man that already owned the field? How did he miss it? How did he not see it? How was he willing to sell something that was so valuable for we don't know how much, but say virtually nothing? And why was the man that bought it so excited? Because he had discovered something that he was yearning for in his life, something he'd been seeking, something he had, had purposed to own. Same thing with the pearl. The man goes off and he, he finds a pearl and he sells everything he has and he buys the one pearl because he knows its value. 
You know, there's, I heard a story uh, not too long ago about a, a guy named Roy Whitstein. This is a true story. He was a rock collector. Um, he didn't just pick up rocks <clears throat> like we would on a creek bank or something. He was a serious collector. He really understood geology and rocks and, and collected them and had a, a, a very valuable and varied collection of rocks and, and semi-precious gems. And he, his sons one Saturday gave him a $5 bill each and said, Dad, you know you're going to the rock show, buy us a rock. And he said, I will. So he gets to the rock show, and in a Tupperware jar sitting on a stand is a potato-sized lump of what just looks to be ordinary rock mixed in with a bunch of agates and crystals and other things, quartz. And he looks at the, at the vendor and he says, um, the guy says, it's $15 for any rock on the table. And the man says, well, I don't think that's worth $15. Uh, it's just a potato-sized lump of rock. And he says, well, I'll tell you what, I'll sell it to you for $10. So he takes the two fives out, gives it to him, takes it home, with very carefully cracks it open. And what he discovers is the second largest star sapphire in the world. Uncut value, just broken open with that hammer, is $2.5 million. Cut properly and sold, it's worth $10 million. Now, the math's pretty simple. That's a million-fold increase. He takes his son's two $5 bills, leaves home with $10 in his pocket, comes home with a million, $10 million treasure. That's what Jesus is saying. The kingdom of heaven is just like that. You're looking at something that you say, I'm willing to give away. It's not even worth what I thought it was worth. It's not even worth $15. I'll give it to you for 10. And it's worth 10 million. The man overlooked the treasure that he had. And he did it to his peril, to his regret. We'll take one quick last look at, at the last part of the parable here because it's important. It's the parable of the net. Because this echoes the very first part we didn't read today, but it's the parable of the, of the weeds. Jesus says when the when, uh, field was sown, the weeds came up and Satan planted the, the weeds in the field. And the servant said, what should we do? Go dig them up? And he said, no, let's just wait until they all grow up and we'll bind up the weeds at the harvest and bundle them up and throw them in the fire. That's a pretty permanent way to dispose of something. The same thing Jesus is saying, he's circling back around to that same principle here about the net. He says the net is cast, and when it's cast, all the fish are brought in. What, is the, what does the fisherman do? He separates the fish, the good from the bad. Now there's a warning in here. Most of these parables are really great news. I mean, I love hearing stories about Potatoes that turn into $10 million, potato-sized rocks that turn into $10 million. That's good news when you apply it to, to our lives and, and the possibility of living in a kingdom like that. There's also a warning here. The fishermen separate the good fish from the bad fish. And he says there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. In other words, he's saying that the day of salvation is over. You need to have chosen. You need to have listened. You need to have heard. And he turns to his disciples and he does what he often does. He asks them a question. And he says, have you understood all these things? And kind of in their ignorance and hubris, they say, yes, we have. 
good for them. I've been reading stuff like this for a lot of years. I, I can't claim to understand it. But I can understand the message. Don't miss the fact that the kingdom of heaven has been put right in front of you. Don't miss the fact that there's great treasure right in front of you. You don't think the kingdom of heaven is real? See this wreath? See this wreath? See these people? See these prayers that have been answered? God sitting on the throne of heaven in His mercy and His grace chooses to bring heaven down by answering prayers. We pray. He responds. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's not a wives' tale. It's based on truth. It's based on the eyewitness accounts of Jesus himself. It's based on our ability to continue to seek, to look past what we think we see, and with our very hearts and by the power of the Holy Spirit, say, come Lord Jesus and explain to me, show me where the treasure is so that I could put everything else aside to pick that up. Amen.